morning. Since we're talking about the youth being at our house Friday night, I'm going to go ahead and issue some homework, okay? So for you youth that are here, this is your homework, okay? I want you to read Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Got that? What's the passage, Hannah? Okay, you don't have that. Let me repeat it. Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Okay? What is it, Nate? Okay. <laughs> is this a prelude to what's to come through our time through our time this morning here? <laughs> Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. We're going to talk about the problem, and we're going to talk about the hope. Now, it's not going to require a ton of study for you because we're going to talk about some of what all of that means this morning, okay? Most of you have heard of Booker T. Washington. He was one of the most prominent African Americans of the late 19th century, early 20th century. He was an educator. He was the founder of Tuskegee College. He was an advisor to some presidents. He was an author and in his book, titled Up From Slavery, he describes the scene that took place among the black people on the plantation he was a part of on the night that their freedom was proclaimed. Okay, This is how he describes that scene. There was no sleep that night. All was excitement and expectancy. Early in the morning, we were all sent for. The proclamation was read, and we were told that we were free and could go when and where we pleased. There was great rejoicing followed by wild scenes of ecstasy, but the wild rejoicing did not last long. I'm going to use his words. By the time the colored people had returned to their cabins, there was a marked change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 out into the world to provide for himself. Within a few minutes, the wild rejoicing ceased and a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters. Now that they were liberated, they found possession of freedom to be much more serious business than they had anticipated. Listen, freedom and the possession of freedom is very serious business. As, the Christ, as Christ is going to talk about today, we desire freedom. We desire the freedom of all men. There's never going to be any disagreement on whether or not men should be free. The disagreement's going to come in our pursuit of trying to define what freedom really is. And what freedom really means. Is freedom simply political 
Therefore, it's found in the form of a democracy. Is freedom economic? Therefore, found in my ability to choose from the many options before me, whether it's a Walmart shelf or a Chevrolet dealership. Is freedom simply intellectual and found in my not only my right to think, but my right to express my thoughts regardless of the content of that expression, or is freedom simply geographical and I'm privileged to be a citizen of the West rather than a citizen of the East? For our sake, I think the most relevant question is, what is really Christian freedom? What does it mean to be free in Christ? And does that question afford a multitude of opinions. Can freedom mean one thing for me and something completely different for you? Now, when we were in Hopkinsville, Kentucky for a season, I preached a message on the cost of following Christ. That day I received a note from a woman who was listening to the message and the note read like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I can't believe that Christ would hold us to the claims that you talked about today. Now, that means that there was one of two problems that took place during my message. Either one could be likely. Number one, I did an extremely poor job of relaying the fact that following Christ, even in the midst of a cost, is the most liberating pursuit that a Christian can have. Second possibility is we simply had two completely opposing ideas of what Christian freedom really means. Today, we're just simply going to try to talk about, expose, uncover the idea of being free. Not just free, but free indeed. Let's open our Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, set the scene a little bit here. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's made some pretty bold claims about himself. If anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. From your innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. He's claimed to be the light of the world. He's made some serious claims. A lot of attention is taking place on him a lot of focus on him. And let's not be deceived here. Just because we're in John chapter 8 and still in the beginnings of the book doesn't mean that we're early in Christ's life. About two and a half years or so have passed. It's just a few months before Christ is going to die. So the hatred toward him is building. Now, I want us to back up and actually start in verse 30 of chapter 8, which says this. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. He's teaching, making some proclamations about himself. I wanted to back up in verse 30 because of what verse 31 says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Now, it's going to be important that we pay attention to the difference in verse 30 and 31. What's the difference? What's the difference in belief that we just read? Verse 30, they believe in Him. Verse 31, 
they believe him. We need to point out that difference, okay? Because it's easy to say, well, I believe that he's a prophet, or I believe he's a teacher, or I believe he's a good man, and believe him. You know, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? Peter said, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, some say this, some say that. That can fall under the category of they believe you're a prophet, so they might believe some things you have to say. But they're still detached from Peter's confession, we believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So their belief is limited. It's important that we know that because he's going to go on to say, hey, your dad's the devil. Okay, So we need to know who he's saying that to, why he's saying it. So let's back up. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Faith, belief. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Saying it again. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. What a slam to Christ. We weren't born of of sexual immorality. We don't even know who your father is. Your your mother was pregnant before she was even married. We have one father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What an indictment to these unbelieving Jews. Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you this morning, God, and we we need, we want to learn. Father, where do we fit into this passage, God? Where, where do we fit into this passage? Where, where are we indicted in this passage? God, we're redeemed. If we're redeemed here, we're justified by grace. So our accusation may be limited, but God, is there a place where we fit into what you may be wanting to say? Lord, where, where are areas that we may be enslaved? Where are areas that we require and need to be free, God, free indeed? Lord, I would ask this morning, God, that if there are any of us, and God, we're feeling bound or shackled or restricted or confined, that God, You would aid us, help us, convict us, draw us, that we would be free indeed. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Two principles I want to pull from this passage. First, I want to talk about the seriousness of slavery. And then secondly, I want to talk about the solution to slavery. Okay, Let's talk about the seriousness of slavery. Let's reread verses 33 through 35. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Really? How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Let's stop. Let's just go ahead and stop there. I believe that the man that can most appreciate freedom is the person that can reflect on is the person that has been the most intimate with the oppression and the bondage that comes from being enslaved. Does that make sense? The man who can appreciate freedom is the man that knows what it means and what it felt like felt like to truly be enslaved. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look to the Jews and we're going to learn from their mistake. Okay? Now, you may say, well, they're not believers. How can we learn from them? Very easy. Because being a Christian in and of itself is not the guarantee or the stamp on our lives that sin is not still a serious matter for us. Because we as believers, regardless of whether we've been born again for a few years or many, we can still this day, this moment, be enslaved by habits. We can be enslaved by addictions. We can be enslaved by twisted thought lives. We can be enslaved by personal desires that conflict with Christ's call of supremacy over our very lives. And the first thing that we need to learn from these Jews is that their thoughts of slavery seem to be smothered by self-denial. Look, these Jews, in their attempt 
to deny we've never been enslaved. Listen, and of course they're talking about on a physical level, Christ takes it to a spiritual plane, which is where we're going to camp. But they make the strong attempt to deny that they've never been enslaved. And listen, Christ will not have it. Not only will Christ not have it, Christ reiterates the seriousness of being enslaved in verse 34, as He says, everyone. Back up. Truly, truly, there's emphasis here. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, we've all fallen in that camp at some point of our lives. And the reality is, depending on where we are now, we might be camping on the edge of that property right now, this moment. Everyone who practices sin is oppressed. Everyone who practices sin this moment is confined. Everyone who practices sin is in shackles. Everyone who practices sin at this moment is in bondage. Everyone who's practicing sin and bound by some type of sin were submitted to the power of sin and were guilty of something, and it's called sin. Now, I'm a little confused at the Jews' response to Jesus' statement in verse 33. Because their response is, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you can say we can become free? Now, we don't read very far into the book of Genesis before we realize that they were an enslaved people. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were enslaved by the Assyrians. They were enslaved by the Babylonians. They were enslaved by the Persians. History tells us they were enslaved by the Greeks. They were enslaved, even as they're arguing at this moment, they're enslaved by the Romans. And yet there's the strong attempt to avoid the truth and the fact of the matter. You know what? You're right. We're enslaved. You're right. We're in bondage. I believe that they're doing so much more than making an attempt to suppress their history. This is where I think we may come in. I think that they are revealing to us, guys, the, and I'm going to emphasize, the greatest hindrance that we face in our fight for spiritual freedom. Our fight for greater spiritual freedom, maybe even our fight for, our fight for any type of freedom at all. The greatest hindrance in our fight for freedom, is the rationalization of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but we don't probably have to look very far beyond our own homes to see that to some degree or another. Some degree or another. <clears throat> Hannah, why did you just smart off your sister? Well, I just smarted off my sister because... I went into her room and I asked for that specific pair of jeans and she refused. Sarah, why did you refuse? Well, I refused because she came into my room and she demanded. And I'm just not going to let her talk to me that way. Why was I short-tempered and rude to my wife? Because she provoked me. Why did she provoke me? Well, she provoked me because she didn't have her needs met when she thought she should have her needs met and she's angry about that. But, listen, 
Let me tell you what we're not. We're not enslaved. We're not influenced by sin. Now, we may be responding to circumstances in our lives that are taking place in the moment, but what we are not is we're not enslaved. We're not under the influence of sin. We're not under the bondage of any type of sin. And I believe that just as the Jews are so quick to say, wait a minute, we've never been enslaved, enslaved when their whole history is defined by nothing but slavery. I think we could be just as quick to say that, yeah, I might have bad behavior, but it's not due to an enslavement or the influence of sin. It's due to the circumstances that are surrounding me. Now, what that means is we call our behavior human frailty or we call our bad behavior bad habits or we call our bad behavior, and I love this one, the product of my upbringing. Or we call our bad behavior a provoked response or justification. We're real quick possibly to attach a label to our bad behavior, but I'm wondering, are we quick to call our behavior what the Bible calls our behavior, which is sin? Listen, I can be so quick to point out the sin in other people's lives, but what about mine? I'm very quick to point out that another man is lazy. Very quick to point out the laziness of another man. But am I quick to rationalize my own laziness by saying, well, I've been so busy in the past, and that's an excuse for my laziness at the moment. I'm so quick to point out the greed in the life of another man, but am I quick to rationalize my own greed by saying, you know what, I'm really just pursuing a better source of provision for my family. That's all I'm trying to do here. I can point out the man who's going off on his own to do his own thing in the midst of and perhaps even against godly counsel, and I'm quick to call that audacity. I may even be quick to call that rebellion. But am I quick to rationalize my own independent spirit by calling it something like initiative? I'm very quick to look at another man's anger and short temper and call that sin... But am I quick to rationalize my own temper and my own outbursts of anger by calling it something like victimization? Now, let me give you an example of that. My grandson comes over to our house the, I want to think Friday. And so as he comes over to the house, he brings this little box of new Hot Wheel cars that he had just gotten from the store, brand new, and the package comes into the office. Hey, will you open these? Sure. I immediately have a memory, and it's not a good one. Okay, Just by opening a box of Hot Wheel cars, I'm flooded with the memories of my childhood. I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. I might feel like I'm in therapy. Okay, So I have these memories of my childhood. My father, my stepfather, he was a very emotionally manipulative man. And he would hang things over my head, and he just was very a very hard harsh person. And so when my mother separated from him, I had so many things that I had accumulated as a little boy in this, and I remember it vividly, this black toy box. I had a ton of Hot Wheel cars. Man, I loved those things. I played with those continually. I had comic book collection. I just had all of this stuff. And I remember wanting that stuff back 
And that's where that emotional manipulation kind of came into place, and his response was, no. No, you can't have this stuff. You left, I've got it, I'll keep it. Okay? So when my grandson comes to me, and he wants me to open this box of Hot Wheels, I'm flooded with memories of victimization. And listen, I am mad. I'm mad. I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my body. I feel my blood pressure rising. So much so that I went to my wife later that day and I said, listen, I have five top regrets. One of, the, one of my top five regrets is that I went to my stepfather's funeral. And the reason that I regret that is because that may have projected to somebody that I really cared about him and I didn't. And I'm walking around with this victim mentality all day long. And I've done that somewhat throughout my life in relation to that as an adult man, a young father, dealt with those feelings. Now, what I did was I allowed this experience to project I'm a victim and I am responding in anger. I'm responding this way because of something that was done to me so long ago. We do that, don't we? We will name place labels over our sins. We will mask our sins somehow, some way, whether it's calling it victimization, whether it's calling it justification, whether it's calling it righteousness, righteous indignation. Some, somehow, so often, we can take a label to mask the reality of what's going on in our heart And the greater we mask the condition, the better we feel. But there's a huge, huge problem left to deal with. The huge problem that we're left to deal with is, listen, if we're not identifying the issue as sin, we're never going to be free. If I don't identify this issue for what it really, really is, I'm not a victim, I'm a sinner. The issue isn't the symptom. The issue is the condition. The issue isn't how it's manifesting itself. I'm a victim because of what he did. The issue is the condition that's defining me. I am a sinner and what's taking place in my life right now is sin. If I don't, if I don't identify that truth, what's going to happen the next time my grandson opens up his comic book collection? I'm going to get mad all over again and I'm going to remain in bondage. So let's do this. Let's try to, for the sake of this passage, as relates to this passage, let's make an attempt to identify sin. Forward over to verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now let's establish clarity. Yes, he's talking to unbelievers, but I want to I want to say something that I think is very relevant. The outworkings of sin usually are pretty common and usually pretty predictable, and usually they manifest themselves, sin will manifest itself the same way in my life through self-seeking desire and self-serving pleasure. Listen, a lust, a look, an attitude, a response, an approach a temperament, an inclination, a mood, a philosophy, a prejudice, an amusement, a motive, a fascination, an urge, a slamming of a door, a stomping of a foot, a stomping out of a room, 
of facial expression, a heavy sigh, so many ways that this is going to affect my life, and I blow it off as a response to a circumstance rather than a root problem. Now, we're going to see this struggle very, very, very clearly in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, when Paul says this, I do the very thing I do not want to do. Now, the word do means to cause to exist. This is a term used in botany or plant life. So let's talk about what Paul is doing. What Paul is choosing to do as a person who's redeemed. He is causing a seed to be planted in his mind. He is causing that seed to be cultivated. He's causing that seed to germinate. And he is causing the end result, which is the producing of bad fruit in his life. That's what he's saying. I do, I cause to exist the very thing that I don't want to cause to exist. Now, he identifies the culprit in in verse 20 of chapter 7 when he says this. If I do what I do not want, it's a product of my upbringing. It's because I was raised as a Pharisee and I didn't have a childhood. It's a result of the circumstances and persecution that are confronting me from all sides. It's not what he says. If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It sounds like Paul could be setting the stage for some justification. Listen, it's not me, it's sin. It's not me, the devil made me do it. It's not me, it was my upbringing. It's not me, I was provoked. But he doesn't do that. The first step is he identifies the problem. It's not an outside source, it's an inward condition. This is sin. And I'm calling it sin. I'm not calling it a problem. I'm not calling it an upbringing. I'm not calling it a result of circumstances. I'm calling what I am causing what it really is. It's sin. So the first thing that he does is he calls it what it is. He calls it sin. The second thing that he does is he takes responsibility for his role in his sin as he says, wretched man that I am. Not wretched person that you are and not wretched circumstances that I've been placed in, but wretched man that I am. And then begins the pursuit of freedom. Then he says, after that confession, after that acknowledgement that it is what it is, it's sin, period. After that acknowledgement, then he says, who can deliver me? In other words, man, I am chained. I'm shackled because of my condition. Who can take these chains and these shackles and remove these shackles from me? Praise be to God. He's the only one. I can't do that. I can't remove these shackles. He is the only one. And likewise, notice that Jesus does not say, you are of your father the devil and you do your father's desires. Look at verse 44. He does not say, You are of your father the devil and you do your father's desires. What did I leave out? I left out our role. That's what I left out. He says, you are of your father the devil and your desire is to do 
your father's desire. See, to say, if he would have said, you are of your father the devil, and you do your father's desire, man, wouldn't that have left an open door for such an outside influence? You're just doing what this other person's doing. Or you're just doing something based on the influence of another person. That's not what he says. He says, you are of your father the devil and your desire. It's in you. It's not an outside culprit. It's an inside condition. You have to focus on the inside condition, not the symptoms. It's This is your desire. So what Paul and what Christ both seem to be saying and agreeing on is that sin is the acting out and the acting on personal self-seeking desires and personal self-serving pleasures. And when we add Martin Luther's definition of sin to that, which is sin is a self-centered failure to believe God. Now, if sin is a self-centered failure to believe God, then sin must be a self-seeking desire to fulfill my pleasure. So the question is simply this, beloved. What's going on in your life? Very elementary, very basic. What's going on? What's going on with your life? What's going on in your life? Where do you feel yourself bound? perhaps shackled. Yes, I was short-tempered and rude with my wife, but man, it's been a long day. I'm tired. Yes, I slammed the door on the van shut this morning on the way to church, but once again, she didn't have the kids ready on time. Yes, okay, yes, I slammed his plate down on the dinner table, but you know what? I'm frustrated with having to do everything all of the time by myself. <laughs> Listen, what's going on in your life. Yes, I'm angry and I'm bitter. And if that person wouldn't have dealt dealt with me that way, then I would not be an angry and bitter person. Are we rationalizing sin by pointing to the circumstances as the problem when they're really the symptom of an internal condition? What's going on in my life? You know what? I just have to call it sin. Now you're asking, dude, What is up with all of this harping on sin? Well, let me tell you what's up. What are we wanting? I think we want to be free. I think we want to be free from any type of shackles that may be binding us. Shackles of greed or forms of lust or or unhealthy goals and unhealthy desires. And please take notice of the fact that the very thing that the Jews are in denial about is the very thing that's going to prevent them from being free. Jesus is saying, I'm here to offer you freedom. I'm here so that you can be free, free indeed. And they're saying, we don't need to be free, we're already free. Not not acknowledging at all, you are so far from free. You couldn't be any more enslaved if you wanted to. You're not free at all. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's that mean? I think it means that when we 
are engaged in sinful behavior or, a step further, we're in bondage to a specific sin. Think what that means is that we have an advocate through the person of Jesus Christ because of the imputed righteousness on our lives through salvation and the Savior rushes to our defense immediately and makes intercession as a great high priest with God the Father. Immediately. Now listen, that's good news and that's the result of our justification. But let me tell you what it's not. It's not freedom. It's not freedom if We're rationalizing sin rather than confessing sin. It's good news because it's a result of justification. But it doesn't drop the shackles from our wrists and our ankles unless we're confessing the behavior for what it really is, sin. It's sin. Period. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do we need to be free from that? Let's talk about the solution. The solution to slavery. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. slave can't set anybody free. Only the son in the house can do that. slave can't. He doesn't have that right. He doesn't have that authority. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The word abide, it means to stay, to remain, to continue in, to dwell. It means to be patient. It means to wait. It means to abide in Christ's house when a part of the world, or maybe even when all of the world, is abiding outside of Christ's house because of the allure and the temptations that are taking place outside of Christ's house. There's a culture that's inviting us, and equally as strong, there's a disposition that's tempting us. And Christ seems to have established the perfect equation for our freedom. And it begins with us abiding in Him. And Jesus says there's some things that come along with that. And just bear with me for a moment, because I'm getting ready to throw a butt in here. Jesus says, look, when you remain in truth, when you run to truth, when you rest in truth, there's some things that are consequences of that in the positive. Number one, you are my disciple, truly. He says, look, in verse 31, if you do this, you're truly my disciple. You're certainly my disciple. You're positively my disciple. You are actually my disciple. So there does need to be that separation from true disciples and false disciples. That's the problem, right? Verse 30, they believed in Him. Verse 31, they believed Him. So there's a difference of belief. So He's saying, look, if you do this, then you can know you're truly a disciple. Second consequence is, you will know truth. Third consequence is, that truth will begin to liberate you. You will begin to live a liberated life. So the thought behind that, I would think, has to be something like this. It has to be that we come to a conclusion at some point in our lives that what's taking place in Christ's house is more satisfying than what's taking place outside of Christ's house. The truth in Christ's house is more satisfying than the temptations of the world and the philosophies of the world that reside outside of Christ's house. 
It has to suggest that the truth of abiding and remaining in His truth, it has to be more relevant than my disposition at the moment. Would that be right? It has to be more relevant and more 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 real than my temptation at the moment. I mean, is there any way that that could be accurate? So, so what that would have to mean is the next time that you're struggling with sin or the next time that you see this is a bondage that I'm responding to or responding out of, what we need to do then is we need to run to Christ, remain in Him, reside in Him, trust in Him, be patient as we wait upon Him, exercise some perseverance, and know that eventually freedom's going to come. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that is a perfect solution. But I do think there's a problem. The problem is Christ's perfect solution is lived out or attempted to be lived out by imperfect people. That's the problem. Because the reality is, I don't always run to that perfect solution in the heat of my sin moment. Do you? In the heat of the moment when sin is creeping up and you're tempted to respond and you're tempted to lash out and you're tempted to be angry or you're tempted to look or you're tempted to lust or you're tempted to respond based upon self-seeking, self-serving desire and pleasure. Do we always stop in our tracks in the heat of the moment and run to Christ and say, okay, deliver me from this moment? No, we don't. We just don't. Do we? Do you? Do you do that every time? We don't do that. What's that mean? Does that mean that if we don't follow Christ's perfect pattern or Christ's perfect plan that we're never going to be free? If I don't in the heat of the moment run to Christ and say at that moment do something about this or give me a truth that I can bend to or cling to, does that mean that I'm never going to be free? Well, I think that there's two things that are very, very important that we have to take note of in the heat of the moment. And it's this, number one. The first thing I think that we need to know about abiding with the goal of freedom is that all of this, abiding, knowing truth, being changed by truth, number one, it is all a matter of grace. Number one, it's a matter of grace. Now that grace is going to confront our temptation to think we're going to fix our lives on our own. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because you are not under law, but you are under grace. There's something called grace, guys, that's working outside of us, that's working inside of us, that's infecting our hearts, that's touching our minds, and all of this is being done in spite of us. And all of this is being done in the heat of those moments. The second thing that we need to know about this is that God is sovereign. Now let me tell you what that means. That means that Christ is so much more committed to our freedom than we are committed to our freedom. Christ is committed to His people being free. Otherwise, I don't think that He would speak with the level of certainty that He's speaking with. Look in verse 39. He doesn't seem to open up these truths and present them as options as much as He's presenting them as certainty. Verse 39. 
if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. It's a given. If God were your father, you would love me. Whoever is of God, they do hear the word of God. So, so let's revisit this idea. So if you were God's children, you would be doing this. If God was your father, you would be doing that. If you are of God, you will be doing this. Why will we be doing those things? Why does Jesus speak with such certainty and say, if you're God's offspring, ultimately, the end result is you will do this. Why does he say that? Is this going to be based upon our own dedicated strivings that are completely unaided and we're left to do this and figure this out on our own? Or is the source of the Savior's certainty based upon a God who works in us, works in us to work for His will and His work for His good pleasure in spite of us? I think that's the question. Ultimately, what is the decisive factor on how I'm going to respond? I think God's sovereignty is the ultimate decisive factor because in the heat of the moment, I just may not want to bend. But you know what? God's not done with us yet in the heat of the moment. As a matter of fact, God uses the heat of the moment to continue to train and refine and shape us. He uses the heat of the moment. Now, reality is this. More than likely, it could be your reality too. There are times when I feel, just to be frank, I'm in bondage to certain sins. I've shared a little bit of that with you. That bondage, it's kind of followed me throughout my life in different places. I talk to guys all the time. They're usually in bondage to some type of sin. Anger. Lust. There's always a type of bondage that seems to kind of follow us around at times. Now, the reality is I know the biblically correct answer. I know what I should do. I know that there's a truth that I can run to that's going to confront my disposition at the moment or my bondage at the moment. I I know that. And I know that if I run to that truth and and bring that truth into my heart and to my mind, that that truth has the power and the animation to change. I know all the right answers. But that doesn't change the reality of the moment that there are times, guys, there are times when instead of running to Christ, I run to the desire at the moment. I run to the self-seeking, self-desert, or self, self-pleasurable desire at the moment. I do that. I will at times respond to the desire to be angry. I will at times respond to the desire to manipulate the moment or manipulate the person. I will at times respond to the desire to tell the white lie or the big lie or the lies in between, whatever the difference may be. I will do that. But God's not done yet in His sovereignty. Because God will allow us to carry on sometimes in that condition. But if you're born of God and you're offspring of God, I'm going to tell you something. There's going to come a time in your life when you're going to become... 
you're going to become very ashamed of that ongoing sin in your life. There's going to come a time when you're going to be disgusted with yourself. There's going to become a time when you're going to become angry with yourself. You're going to look at yourself in the mirror and you're going to say, who is this man that has fallen prey to the same sin over and over and over? And it's in those moments, guys, it's in those moments when we hit rock bottom, we're completely deflated, we're completely sick to death of ourselves, it's at those moments that we're ready for the grace that God gives and He gives us grace in the form of truth and that truth begins to set me free from my disgusted self. And that truth begins to take root in my heart and I begin to become set free from anger and set free from guilt and set free from shame and I become free. Listen, sometimes abiding does not mean that I run to all of my theological books and I try to extract the truth that I can run to and bend to that's going to set me free from my sin at the moment. Sometimes abiding means simply running to Christ helplessly and waiting upon Him to do the work that I just will never be able to do. That's what abiding means sometimes. And then, this is the process, God does something even more amazing. That's when He begins to take the truth that's now changing me after I'm a deflated man, I'm a beaten down man. He takes this truth, And that truth begins to change my heart and my disposition and I begin to become changed. And I realize at that point that His truth is a greater treasure than my self-seeking and self-serving desire and my self-serving pursuits. Now, at that point, I'm not only free, but I'm free indeed. Sometimes God... Now, this is how awesome God is. Sometimes God sovereignly uses our sin to take us to a low point, to free us from our sin. Now, how gracious is that? I've been spending time with a young man. A young man who's had thoughts of marriage with this particular... Not you guys. It's not, it's not Jacob anyway. We're going to clear the slate, and that's not them. There's no hidden... And what this, what this guy has confessed through the process, what they've both confessed is... He's hard, demanding, dominating. There's no gentleness. There's no, no affection. It's all instructions. Do this, do this now. So what's happened is the female involved severed the relationship. It's heartbroken. And is for the first time, first time, Man, maybe I was this. Maybe I was too controlling. Maybe I wasn't gentle. Maybe I, maybe I was, maybe I was hard. Maybe I was uncaring. Maybe I was unkind. It's at this point, not in the heat of the moment, when people were saying, "Man, come on, what are you doing? What are you thinking? We can't treat this person like that." It wasn't in those moments when truth began to sink in and began to change and redirect. It's in this moment where the person is deflated and the person's feeling hopeless and the person's feeling helpless, what am I going to do now? That's when this person is ready to hear, receive the truth that they need to hear 
in the form of grace that can cause this person to finally be free from a disposition that's defined him for so, so long. Sometimes that's what God does with us. And that's what Christian freedom is, really. It's an exchange of power. We think we have power, right? Slavery is the power that somebody has over another person to the point that they control that person's whole life. So Christian freedom is me relinquishing the power that I think I have. And sometimes God's just going to take us through a process in order to get me to that place to release what I think is power, but it's really not. But that's what freedom is. Slavery is power that one person has over another. Freedom is me relinquishing power that I think I have back to God and saying, God, you do it, because I can't. That's, that's freedom in Christ. How does this encourage us? Well, I pray that it encourages this way. If we are offspring of God, God loves you enough to set you free. He will do that. But sometimes in His sovereignty, He allows us to take a much longer road to freedom so that the truth becomes a treasure that I've gained in my life and has become real to me rather than a rule that I'm trying to bend my life to. That's the good news because the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And when the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. Listen, Christ is committed to the freedom of His people. Let's recap. It's the process. My behavior is not the product of anything other than what the Bible calls it, sin. I confess it for what it is, sin. And then I can begin my pursuit of freedom. Not, in, not, not before. If I'm trying to link my bad behavior to anything other than the Bible, what the Bible calls it, which is sin, guys, we will not be free indeed. That's not a statement of, of, of condemnation or an attempt to beat it. Listen, we want freedom. I'm discovering for the first time in my life so many things that are wrong with me. Why? Look, I, I need to be free. I need to be free from that anger that I talked about. So, you know what? I've got to quit. I've got to quit excusing it. I've got to quit making excuses for it. I've got to quit talking about how bad life was for me. And I've got to say, you know what? When I slam a chair, when I stomp a foot, when I, you know... No, that's not victimization coming out. That's a condition. And that's what I've got to deal with in my pursuit of freedom. So do you. I'm going to ask you if you would to bow your heads with me. And I want to ask you a question. Because I'm making an assumption here. You may approach me afterward and say your assumption is wrong. So be it. But I know that some things that I'm saying are true to some of us. I'm included in the us. There's some sin... There's some sin in your life right now. There's some sin that's defining you. And God in His kindness, His grace, and His love for you, He's wanting you to recognize that's exactly what it is. Remember that God sent His Son to come into this world to do for us what the law couldn't do. To release us from the bondage of the law. So when we talk about at this moment, 
allowing sin or sins of your life or bondage of sin to come to the surface of your mind, understand that's the purpose. Because Christ wants to do in your life right now, where you are, what the law can't do. He wants to deliver you from that bondage of sin. The law can't do that, which means your efforts are useless right now. Okay? So, the purpose of just trying, God, what's going on in my life? Where's the sin in my life? Or, maybe it's just automatic. You recognize it. You know it. You know what it is. Understand that the purpose that Christ would have in drawing that out is to deliver you from it, not to condemn you for it. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to plead with you to quit trying to fix this on your own. Quit trying to deal with ill feelings toward a spouse. Quit trying to change your internal disposition, your way of thinking. Please quit trying to do that on your own. You might as well live under the law. But Paul tells us that we're no longer slaves to sin because we're under something else called grace. Allow Christ to reveal that and then run to Christ to do what you can't do. Take it from you so that you can experience freedom. So I just simply ask, what, what sin what sin may have you bound here in this place this morning? Christ is committed to your freedom. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be set free. And so, Father, as we come to You this morning, Lord, we, we just peer internally right now. We're not looking outside of ourselves, God. We're looking at ourselves. We're looking in our hearts. We're looking at, at who we are. We're looking in the mirror. God, reveal to us what we need to bring to You in order that we would be free. God, shake up our hearts and eradicate any type of self-denial right now, God. Let us follow the example of Paul. And we would ask, Father, that You would just fill us with Your Spirit right now. For we are talking about the work of You and Your Spirit, God. Fill us with Your very Spirit right now, Lord. And let us follow the example of Paul. What am I causing in my life that's sin? What am I clinging to in my life that's sin? Because we can say, well, just repent of and turn from the sin. But God, You're saying, no, I want You to be free. So Lord, show us where we're shackled. Show us where we're bound. Show us where we're confined. Show us where there's injustice. And God, free us. You are our hope, our answer. You hold the keys that can free us. You're the antidote to our sickness. You're the solution to our condition. Help us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name.